Welcome to The Change Alchemist. Today's guest is Eric Ressler. Eric is the founder and creative director at Cosmic, a social impact creative agency. Cosmic empowers social impact organizations to catalyze real-world change by helping them nail their impact story, build brand awareness, and inspire action. Welcome to The Change Alchemist, Eric. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for having me on today. So Eric, let's dive right in. Tell me a little bit about Cosmic. So Cosmic is a social impact creative agency. And so we work with nonprofits, social enterprises, foundations, basically just organizations that exist to do good and to move humanity forward in whatever way that they're doing that. And we help them with basically branding, design, strategy, and technology. Social impact has become more important this year after some of the Black Swan events of last year, Black Lives Matter, COVID, and people are realizing there's more to life than a nine to five job. Can you explain what social impact means and why it's becoming more relevant in today's world? So to me, social impact is really about imagining a better version of the world and then galvanizing a coalition to actually create collective action around that issue. And there's not only one way of doing it. There's not only one structure to doing it. You don't have to be a nonprofit to be working towards social impact. But at the end of the day, that's what, really what it comes down to. And I do think that some of the recent events have created more awareness than ever around some of the inequities in our society. But these are things that have been in our history pretty prolific and prevalent across the years. And certainly things have gotten better in a lot of ways. And then there's still a lot of work to do. And I think that when we've all collectively as a global society had some time to sit still and observe basically to go on pause and to reflect around our values and what we'd like to see change in the world, that's created a sort of awakening in a global shift in consciousness around the importance of some of these issues. So when we talk about social impact, I think a few things come to mind, like climate change, like Black Lives Matter. What are some of the projects that you've worked on that, that have made a difference to you and to the client? Yeah, I mean, we're really lucky in that we've been able to work with a lot of really awesome organizations doing really good work. So it's always hard to just kind of pick and choose one. But the one that really pops into my brain right away is actually for a group called the Lakota People's Law Project. And they have over the last few years, um, and we've certainly helped with this, but I don't want to take credit for all the good work that the organization has done, been extremely effective at creating a strong message and a strong brand around protecting and creating strength for the Lakota people and making sure that their culture is preserved and respected. And they've been doing that across a number of issues. They were really integral in the Dakota Access Pipeline and, and the, the efforts to make sure that that didn't happen and that that pipeline didn't go through sacred lands and you know further impact in a negative way this, this native and indigenous culture. And through the efforts there and building out a strong community have been able to create a lot of other um, important impact for that community and for just building awareness around indigenous peoples in America. And so it's been really awesome to help them figure out how to use 
digital strategy and how to use brand and communications to create an impact that's galvanizing a global community and not just the area of the Dakotas, because this is something that people care about across the world. And so that's, that's the first one that really comes to mind for me. So when we talk about design, I think many of us in tech have a limited view. I'd love to hear in your own words what design means and how that can shape social impact. So design to me is really understanding a desired future state and reverse engineering how to achieve that future state. And there's a number of different ways to approach design and design is such a broad word that can mean so many different things. If you think about this concept of kind of design thinking, that's really around how do you create a new way of approaching an issue, especially if there's been a process in place that's been stalled or hasn't working. And there's a whole approach to creating innovation based on design thinking that would constitute an entire different podcast to get into all the details of. But then there's also elements of just user experience and communication design, and at some level, just kind of art and emotion and expression. And so design to me encapsulates all of that. And those are all different tools in the design toolkit, but really it all comes down to the purpose of design, which is to create change. And we think that it should be used to create positive change. So when we talk about design creating positive change, would that include elements of um, branding, messaging, positioning, all of the above, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I think especially in the social impact sector and especially for nonprofits, those are words that feel maybe foreign to them because those are words that you typically hear in kind of the corporate community or the business community. And we have a, a different set of words that we might use to describe some of those things, but I think we really want these organizations to start to think about themselves as a brand and not just an organization. And what does that mean? And how does that affect the way that we run things and the way that we approach our organization? Um, and we talk about messaging, of course, messaging and storytelling is crucial. I think that's the one that they mostly understand kind of intuitively because they know the power of that for fundraising and for donor engagement. Positioning is another thing that we think a lot about, and we use a different metaphor for the social impact space. And we use kind of a niche ecosystem metaphor. So like carving out a niche within this broader ecosystem. And what we really encourage organizations to do is figure out what are their unique strengths that they can bring to the table as an organization that no one else can do. Because unlike the business community, there's not really as much of a competition around market share. I guess you could argue there is to some extent around donor engagement and there's only so many dollars being invested, but we've seen that grow even in COVID. So I think it's really more about a spirit of collaboration and creativity versus competition. And so that means it's really more about what is your niche in this ecosystem and how can you support other organizations that are working towards the same issue areas or the same areas of focus that you are in a synergistic way that lifts everything up. From a design perspective, question I had was, would this approach be very different for a social impact agency or a nonprofit as opposed to big tech for a couple of reasons. One is they have limited budget. Two is maybe they, they don't want to embellish their message too much. They're, they have a very straightforward message. They don't want to have too much um, sugar coating around it. So how, how, in your view, is working for a, a nonprofit different from working for a regular B2B or a B2C company? When it comes to design and branding and communications, I would say there are some specific differences when you're doing it for social impact versus doing it to sell a product or a service. 
but I actually think that there's a lot more overlap than there is difference. And so we actually started as a firm doing work for startups and for tech and for B2B and B2C brands. We were originally based in Santa Cruz. That's still our unofficial headquarters. We were a distributed team. Um, and so, as you can imagine, we were naturally paired up with a lot of startup companies and, and innovative companies in the Bay Area. And that's really where we kind of cut our teeth as an agency, understanding how to do all this work, learning how to do all this work in an effective way. And then alongside that, we were doing it for philanthropic organizations, social impact organizations. And it was really interesting to under to see the difference. And I think the main difference was really in the cultural mindset of the organizations. A lot of these tech brands and a lot of these startup brands intuitively understood the need and the value of marketing and communications. And that was part of their roadmap already. Whereas a lot of the organizations that we were working with in the philanthropic space didn't really have the same amount of capacity or understanding or uh, value for that work. They oftentimes would think of that as something that you could do if you carved out a little extra budget or something that would happen on top of the program work, the core work that they were doing. And the mindset shift that we really try to educate our clients on, and we're seeing more and more clients coming to us with this shift in mind. So I think there is a big um, transformation happening in the social impact space. But that mindset shift around this work being core and integral and embedded and really truly being part of the program work that you're trying to do versus something that is on top of or in addition to or just talking about the work that you're doing. And I think that the power of digital and what we've seen in this large cultural digital transformation that's been accelerated by the pandemic, but that was already underway, is that digital has the power to connect and to activate a much broader and a much more deeply engaged community than if you don't leverage it. And because it's become so integral and important in our daily lives as individual people, these organizations need to learn to leverage the power of digital and branding and marketing so that they can basically compete and engage in modern culture. And so that's really the big shift that we're trying to get our organizations to understand. And a lot of that is about building out values for that work and intention and resources for that work that otherwise maybe would be piecemealed or someone's second or third job. Sure. So um, since COVID, I think we've all seen tremendous digital acceleration and every company is a software company. Mark Andreessen famously said software is eating the world. And it looks like even my local donut shop has a digital presence. Given that, what are some of the obstacles these companies have to face when they want to be digital? They don't know how. How do they get started? So I think really the first step in any kind of transformation is buy-in at the leadership level. Because if the leadership team and the team that's basically steering the future of the organization doesn't understand the value and doesn't invest in this emotionally and mentally, then it's really hard for the work to be done. Even if there's a strong internal champion lower down in the rank, so to speak, that believes in this, if you don't get the leadership team on board with really truly valuing this work, then that's going to be the biggest barrier that we've seen. And there's always this kind of perception, especially in the nonprofit space and the social impact space, that where are we going to find the money to do this? And I think that's valid. I think that these organizations are often very under-resourced. They don't have enough capacity to do the work that they're doing already. They're not, their true costs are not being funded 
through gifts or through grants or whatever revenue stream and revenue model they have set up. So it does feel like the metaphor that I always like to use is you're looking at a sheer granite cliff and you're at the bottom. You're like, how are we ever going to get to the top of this thing? Mm -hmm. And so I think it really does start with getting leadership buy-in and giving it the proper amount of attention and investment and, and realizing that this isn't an option. This is how this is the conduit of communication in modern culture. And if you're not leveraging it, then you're holding your impact potential back. And as soon as you start to make that shift, then we start to see funding starts to flow. You're able to get donors and investors and small gifts and major gifts. And the money shows up when there's the value and people understand that it's a requirement and it's something that's holding them back. And it's not always easy, but I think that's really the first place to start. More tactically, we look at this in a few different layers and there's this kind of foundational layer that is brand and brand story and really understanding again that niche in the ecosystem and how does that niche in the ecosystem build off of your theory of change as an organization so if you're working towards an issue you have an idea around your process and your mission and your vision for how you're actually going to create the impact that you're trying to create and then you need to look at well how does brand and how does digital and how does technology help us move forward on that path and that trajectory instead of, again, looking at it as a separate thing. So starting with that really clear vision and mission and values for the brand is really the core that everything else flows out from. And then from there, it's really about building a digital media platform. And that is a machine that needs to be built. And that machine is built of a few different key pillars. And the key pillars are essentially content, and technology and then culture and culture again is that internal culture shift so that's at a very high level how we think about a bit of the path happening but it really again starts with leadership buy-in and investing and valuing the work yeah i like your idea of figuring out what their theory of change is and then aligning to their leadership mission and then figuring out a strategy and then driving tactics from there uh, because no change happens overnight, and sometimes it has to trickle down. Exactly. Uh, and uh, if a leader is more technically savvy, it always helps them, I guess. <laughs> it definitely can, yeah. And we've seen a lot of organizations, especially where there's some internal team that's come from the political world, that really understand this and that we've actually learned from. Because for whatever reason, that side of the social impact spectrum has completely embraced digital very quickly. And I think it's because they've just learned how effective and integral it is to the success of political campaigns. And so as we see people who come from the political world start to transition into positions in social impact outside of a political candidate or a political campaign, a lot of that knowledge transfer is starting to happen. So we're seeing more and more savvy people within these teams coming to us, understanding this machine that needs to be built and even things that we're learning from them and their experiences, which is awesome. Um, it's interesting you say that my last guest was Anthony Hayes, and he was actually the person that led Hillary's campaign. And mm -hmm. he's a PR and communications person. Yep. But uh, I was surprised at how digitally savvy he is. And it's amazing that they've embraced this fully. Fully. It's the core to their strategy these days. And I think that started way back even during the Obama campaign before then, right? Obama's campaign was probably the most digitally savvy campaign that was ever run. And then you also start to see 
the the implications good and bad around how this technology can be used to spread information and misinformation and so it's like any tool it can be used for good it can be used for for evil it can be used for anything and so i think it's really imperative that these organizations who are working towards creating a better world figure out how to integrate this into their core strategies so that they can actually create the impact that they're looking to create and so that this technology is being used more for good than for evil so when uh, cosmic approaches uh, a theory of change or a, or a design strategy do you work with content you work with pr you work with brand and bring all the elements together Absolutely. I think the one place in that list that's a little outside of our wheelhouse is the PR side of things. And so typically what we see is our clients have internal team doing PR or a PR firm that specializes in in getting basically media attention. And so we help a lot with basically core brand strategy and design and digital experiences and running campaigns and um, to a certain extent, like paid media and that kind of stuff. But when it comes to earned media, that's really its own kind of specialty. And we're not a large enough firm to have a paid an earned media arm as well. Those firms tend to have relationships with journalists, expertise around how to craft story and pitch story. And that's its own specialization that's just not in our wheelhouse. When we talk about design, I'm sure you've seen the evolution over the years. And last year was a year for the history books. How has design changed in your view over the years and particularly uh, over the last couple of years? It's changed in so many ways. And I think there's so many ways to answer that question. If I think about it most conceptually, I think design has changed in a really good way in that we all expect exceptionally designed experiences as, as people and as consumers. And I think that's because so many modern companies have fully embraced and understood the value of design and brought on extremely talented designers to create well-branded, well-designed experiences for their customers. I think digital transformation has been a large part of that, but design is more than just digital, right? Digital design is a subcategory of design, but I really think the large transformation comes from the fact that the smartest, most innovative companies have really understood the value of design and have designers as founders, have designers at the, the, the C-suite level, guiding strategy, guiding customer experience. And that has led to a very high bar for individuals and their expectations around what it's like to interact with brands today. Mm -hmm. And I think that's good, but that also just puts a lot more pressure on organizations that haven't made that transformation to really figure out how can they play at the same level as these organizations that have vastly superior resources to them, whole design teams, design departments, making decisions for them. And that's, I think, at some level where firms like ours come in to help bridge that gap to a certain extent. But I really do think that's the biggest transformation I've seen in design is just that it's so integral to our culture in ways that it wasn't even 10 years ago, even 20 years ago. Design has always been embedded in our culture in different ways. A lot of the world's most kind of relished and cult-like brands have had a very strong story, very strong design. And so this goes back for a long time, but it being prolific across so many different industries and so many different companies is a huge transformation. And I think it's a good one because it just means that we can all communicate more effectively and we can communicate in a way that the experience is so much more frictionless and intuitive and easy and human. And all of that, I think, 
is largely good. I do think that design, again, can be used for bad intentions uh, as well. And I do think that there are some kind of like dark patterns that have been integrated into some design, into social media, into apps to make them stickier, to make them more addictive. And so I do think it's a double-edged sword and we want to really lean into how can we use design to create good instead of to just keep us addicted to smartphones and technology. I'd like to delve a little deeper into that topic. Just like AI, I think design is something that we need to be really careful about, especially the ethics of design. And I guess there's biases in design too, gender biases and you know racial biases. So how does one go about that? If you will, how do you design for good? So how we literally design for good is that we find organizations that exist to do good and we help them with their design, right? (laughs) So that's the very simple answer is that we won't do design for bad. That's our ethos as as an organization. Now, I think that's a very black and white answer from my perspective to expand upon that as a culture and as a society. I think design is a tool that is used to achieve objectives. And so I think it really comes down to looking at what are the objectives that we're trying to achieve. And I think part of the problem with social media companies specifically, and not just them, but they're a very hot topic right now. This is under the lens and under the spotlight in our culture is that their objectives are around engagement and engagement kind of at all costs. And so what they found is that really divisive and shocking content gets way more engagement. And if they get more engagement, they can sell more ads, they can make more money, they can grow the business. And so when the North Star of these organizations is engagement above all else without any consideration or without enough consideration for the impacts and the ethics of that engagement, that's where design can be used in a way that's not skillful or intentional or for good. And it's, I think, a sticky problem because I think a lot of these A lot of the individual people at these organizations who are designers, who are technologists, who are strategists, they don't want to do bad for the world. They want to do good. They want to use their craft to help people connect, to help people stay engaged socially. But when the at the top leadership level, the metrics for success and their priorities as an organization are around engagement above all else, that's where you start to see an ethical conundrum form. What are some best practices and lessons that big tech can learn from smaller companies, such as the work you're doing with social impact. Any ideas around that? I think the larger a company is, to a certain extent, the more difficult innovation becomes. And so you have to be really intentional around creating systems and processes and habits and a culture of innovation. And innovation tends to happen through curiosity, through listening, through engaging a diverse audience and not making too many assumptions around um, what your customer needs or the process or doing things because that's just the way it's done. And so there's a whole, and I think that's really where the design thinking process can come in to create innovation. And that's a process that briefly is really around empathy, around listening, around prototyping and around getting user feedback and quick iterative cycles. And so if you can start to build those cultures and those processes into your organization, that's where innovation can happen more rapidly, even as you scale. Design thinking has become a buzzword though in most companies. And personally, I've been in many design thinking workshops and it was fun with all the post-it notes and ideas. 
a lot of it is, I think, in the execution. If you just do it and then what's the outcome? Um, or are you doing it to actually drive specific outcomes? I think it's an interesting point about prototyping and getting to market faster. Doing design sprints is something I'm familiar with. So on, more on the product side. Exactly. And I've been in a handful of design thinking workshops over the years, even some for social innovation. And that was interesting. And I completely agree that if you attend a weekend retreat or workshop and do a design thinking course and then come back and, you know, kind of have that in the back of your mind, like there's not going to be any change. So really it's, it is at the kind of product or operations level if it's ingrained into the culture, into the how the work is actually done, if it's embodied by the organization fully, that's where it can really make a difference. And I think that is not easy and it's not necessarily the way some of these organizations start. It's not the only way to do work either. You know, it is a solution and it is a tool. And I think it can be especially effective at a pivotal point or a point where an organization is feeling stuck, where they're not getting results that they're looking for. They're not achieving things as quickly as they'd like. They're designing products or solutions or services, and they're not hitting their mark or they're not getting the reception they're hoping for. Mm -hmm. And I think because design thinking really starts on the, the premise and the foundation of empathy, it can be an extremely effective tool in those kinds of situations, but it really does need to be fully embraced, understood, embodied, and then executed effectively for it to actually work. Sure. When we think about your journey and how far you've come, what would you say has been your superpower? So for me personally, I have two superpowers that kind of work synergistically that are really the only things that keep me effective at all. And those are essentially curiosity and the ability to self-learn. And so if I'm curious, I'm enticed and incentivized to self-learn because I, I want to understand how things work. I want to learn something new about something I don't know very much about. And so I'm able to research, I'm able to, to try things, I'm able to execute and see what works and iterate based on that. So I kind of have this embedded design thinking process in my brain. It's just the way I'm wired. And I've been wired that way since I was really young. And so those are the kind of superpowers, so to speak, that kind of keep me learning and keep me engaged and interested in the work. What advice would you give to younger professionals getting into a field such as yours in order to make a difference, not specifically with social impact, but just in thinking, what are some ideas you might have that have helped you? So if we're talking about design specifically, I really think that, especially when you're first getting into the field, you want to just do as much as you can. There's a lot of, there's a lot of courses and it's becoming academic. It's being brought into major universities. And I think that's all great. There's design schools, there's art schools. The way that you learn design is by doing design and seeing what works and then building off of that. And so, and that's kind of the path that I took. And I think the path that a lot of creatives take is that you just really got to cut your teeth on real world things. If that means doing passion projects, great. If that means volunteering for a while, great. If that means getting a job somewhere, I do think working in the agency world is a really great way to get your teeth cut and go through kind of a design boot camp. I see a lot of folks these days jumping straight into working for a startup. And so they only know that way of doing design. And I do think that when you work in an agency setting or a consultancy setting where you're working with multiple clients, the deadlines are fast, you're having to learn a lot, you're having to produce a lot of work. It's a really great way to just build out some really core strengths and habits around doing good design. 
when you think about how you started in design, is there a specific moment that triggered your interest? Was it painting? Was it photography? What was it? So growing up, I was always just interested in creative expression. And so that took a lot of different forms, but I think where it really crystallized was when I could marry that creative expression with digital platforms, because then I had more control in a weird way or the ability to create things exactly how I was able to see them in my mind's eye. Whereas whenever I was doing things more tactically, drawing, sketching, painting, whatever that was, I always felt like I didn't actually achieve what I saw in my brain. I didn't have the technical skills. And that's why you see these fine artists practice and practice and practice so they can actually achieve what they see in their mind's eye and create a likeness in their work. And that I never achieved that because what I found instead was digital platforms where I could do that perfectly. And I think that digital media has really been my focus as a creative over the years, more so than the fine arts stuff. I, I think that's amazing. And I have a ton of respect for people who can do that. And I really appreciate it. It brings me a lot of joy. But my path has always been more around digital media. So film, photo, video, a lot of digital and a lot of web from a young and early age. At about 12, I was picking up learning how to code HTML and CSS. I was lucky that my parents both worked in tech. I had an Apple Macintosh computer from age 10 on and able to experiment and play from there. And that's really the foundation of where I've built my career. That's great. And I think your path is also unique, given that in the Valley, everybody's a programmer or in tech. To see creatives actually flourish and do well is, is heartening. And as we think about the future of work, I think creativity will become more and more important. As jobs get automated, as AI takes over, people have to bring their human side and their creative side more and more into work. So they're not replaced by bots. Any thoughts on whether creativity can be learned or is it something that's you're, something you're born with? I absolutely think creativity can be learned. I do think certain people's constitution is more, some people can be more intuitively creative just because of their nature and some people have to learn it. I do think that everyone has the capacity for creativity, but just maybe not in the ways that we typically think about creativity. I would argue that math can be really creative as an example. So I think that, and programming is essentially just computer science and math, and it's an extremely creative field. You're basically solving puzzles all day long and figuring out the most creative and efficient way of solving those puzzles. So I do think I agree that especially as more work gets automated, we need to lean into our creative abilities as humans because that's the thing that is going to be most difficult to replace with automation. And if not impossible to some level, I'm not super deep in the AI world, so I don't wanna speak a lot about that. I think just like any new technology, there's pros and cons. I do think that in theory, automating a lot of these manual menial tasks that humans have been doing for a long time is great as long as those humans have the ability to still thrive within their society. And, and if we can get a system built where humans can focus on creativity and humanity and emotional learning versus menial tasks, I think that's an ultimately better society. I just don't think it's gonna be a very clean path to get there. And I think that again, it really starts with, we have to make sure that we're using these technologies skillfully and when we, we create a future of work that's more equitable, that's more diverse, that doesn't only 
influence and empower people at the top, but can actually distribute wealth across the population. And that really starts to work towards a much better version of society, but it's going to take a lot of work to get there. I agree that it's going to be a nonlinear path. It's not going to be easy. (laughs) Any thoughts on how uh, people can kind of get in touch with you? How can they um, find you? Yeah. So going to the website is a great kind of hub for everything. And the website's designed by cosmic.com. And we have a couple different things on there. We of course show all of our work and, and case studies for clients, but we also have an insights tab where we write and publish a lot of our thinking. And some of it's more tactical, some of it's more trends and opinions around the industry and the sector and where it's going but it's a really great resource and and it's all free for anyone who's interested in this stuff. We also published a manifesto on our site. That's just a manifesto tab up there. It's called the revolution is digital. You can also find that on any, your favorite podcatcher. So we have an audio version of the manifesto. So if you're interested in these concepts, it's a great place to start. And then if anyone's interested in connecting, I totally encourage people just email me, Eric at designbycosmic.com. That's E R I C at designbycosmic.com. I will add all of these in the show notes. Um, I'd love to hear uh, what your favorite movie is. Oh my God, that's such a huge question. (laughs) Okay, I'm just going to go with my kind of gut response here because I otherwise just get totally indecisive. I have so many movies that I love, but one of my all-time favorites has got to be The Shining. Yeah, I think I love the book and the movie's great too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I actually, I haven't read the book. I've read a bunch of other Stephen King, but not The Shining. Yeah. It was uh, great to talk to you. And thank you for your time, Eric. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Change Alchemist. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe on iTunes or any other platform of your choice. Listen to previous episodes and stay tuned next week for another episode of The Change Alchemist.